Let's just pray while the people in the booth are setting things up. Our Father, we're thankful that we can praise the Savior this morning. We thank you that we can know in our hearts that we have been redeemed and cleansed by his blood. If there's anyone here who does not know what this means and who has not been cleansed, who has not repented, who has not trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, may that person be led by you to do so, to trust in you, to entrust themselves to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I guess it wasn't that long ago that uh, we had a message on Job, and I can't tell you exactly why I've, I uh, am doing a message on Job, other than um, this is a, a realm that I, I, I've been thinking about and that um, I had posed a question to you a few weeks ago about the, uh, in context of body, soul, and spirit as to who are you entrusting yourself to? To whom are you entrusting yourself? It is related to the question, who is in control? Who is really in control? When we look into our Bibles, uh, we read in a, in a book that is quite a substantial book about a man who went through a terrible trial and wondered who is in control. Job, he's a, he's a patriarch, it's, an, it's a name. It's pronounced Elob in Hebrew. And uh, I happen to have a colleague at work whose last name is that name in his own language. It's an old book. No one really knows how old it is, but he is considered to be a patriarch along with Abraham. It is interesting. Oops, I accidentally... How did it go back that... How advanced that far? There. I'm sorry. I must have been holding it down. You're all giving me funny looks. <clears throat> uh, a patriarch because um, he speaks in this of uh, things that are very old, things like creation and the flood and the fact that the, the law of Moses, there is no allusion to the law of Moses. We believe that, scholars believe that it is before Moses. I, I wish I could read Hebrew. Apparently, it's also uh, all in poetry, all in poetry, and it refers to no other scriptures. Having said that, I think what we're going to see is that the book of Job points forward in many ways, in many fascinating ways, to future truth. The New Testament makes a reference to Job. It says in James 5, verse 10, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And of tender mercy. Verdict of James in the New Testament. As a result of preparing, I learned a new word, theodicy. Theodicy deals with the question of God's justice. In our world today, we see a lot of injustice. And of course, many of an unbeliever, a non-believer will say, how can there be a God when we see so much 
injustice. I think it is a very, in a sense, uh, superficial question and uh, that we need to look at this more deeply as to what the real human need is. Do you, how, how often, I wonder, do you read Job? We, um, we have in that book a, a man who endured really miserable suffering. It's, not, it's perhaps not all that pleasant to, to read about someone who is undergoing miserable suffering. But for the New Testament, we can read verses like 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. There is built into that one of the purposes of suffering, so that when you do experience the comfort of God, you can better relate to those who have suffering, and God can use you to minister to others. In the context of the Christian, and I think it does relate to Job, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but as such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will, with the temptation, make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. We may have suffering, we may have temptation, but God will not allow it to go beyond, beyond to the place where we are destroyed. That is a comfort to us. And here we see a man covered with boils and suffering and has lost everything. And rather than these, man, these three men... Um, acting upon godly principles such as what we read there in Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. These three men, using kind of, a, I would say, a Jewish method of analysis, basically continuously um, use innuendo, innuendo to imply and imply and imply over and over, Job, the reason you are suffering is because there is hidden sin in your life. That is the only explanation. And sometimes they actually use the word hypocrite. That is a nasty word. Job? A hypocrite? These men are certainly not following the New Testament approach to such situations and coming to someone in a spirit of meekness. Galatians 6.1 talks about the spirit of meekness with which we as believers might approach another believer to try to minister to them. Do you really understand everything? Maybe you just think you understand everything. But these men certainly didn't approach Job in his suffering in that manner. So that what that slide presents is actually a huge disconnect. There is a huge disconnect between what's in the picture and what is taught in those three passages in the New Testament. I could almost end my message there and say, think about that. I need to think about that. How do you interact with people? Throughout the book of Job, you have um, rays of light coming out, and they are most, uh, they're, they're a, a great blessing. They're most enlightening. 
They're powerful rays of light that shine throughout this book. And such as, beside the, the, probably the single most famous classical painting of Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What a, what a wonderful attitude to, to have and to cling to and, to and to insist on. He had the right idea. You know, it's only my life. It's only my physical life. If my physical life ends, it doesn't matter. I will continue to have faith in God. Job 23.10, but he knows the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. This man, whether gold in heaven or gold in, in the vindication on earth, he didn't know. But this man is in the midst of his doubts and his sufferings and his problems with his friends has it seems within himself such a confidence and such rays of light that God gives him that I believe are there for us. When we look at this book, we know that the hypothesis put forth by Satan um, actually ended up, it's a question, he, Satan ended up being proven wrong. That's good to know, isn't it? God proves Satan wrong. Satan fails to destroy this man because God would not let it go to that point. And in fact, what we see, of course, is that God, who is a God of honor, he vindicates Job. And even though, it's most interesting, Job is vindicated before his friends by God, he also repents because he realizes how small his concept is. That's like us. We might uh, look at Job from a kind of a analytical point of view, a little, cold, a little bit of a perhaps cold point of view as a, as a, as a play in three parts, uh, Job in three acts, three parts. The trials and the crushings, the it's just disaster and disaster leading to despondency and doubt, not pleasant to read. And then come along what one commentator called his second trial, his so-called counselors. And there are dialogues and disputes and discourses. And I wonder whether these were just as, in, for the most part, just as painful. They didn't help. They were very painful in the middle of the book that these um, three and then plus one men, when they came to him with their ideas. And finally, we have the triumph and the consolations at the end of the book. Job is a book in which God himself speaks at length. We would do well to read the parts of the Bible wherein God speaks at length. And at the very end, of course, there is a very dramatic reversal in Job's situation. I think that this book, um, in a way, is dealing with a very terrible earthly situation. It is dealing with something that many human beings experience, disease, ill health. It is dealing with things that many human beings, all human beings deal, death, death of loved ones. Uh, disasters. These are, in a sense, I think, 
uh, earthly things. They're, in a sense, earthly things. The book has, in the context of those various things, these rays of light and almost what we might call ironies. Did Job ever say, Satan did this to me? No. That's most interesting. He continued, although he had doubts, to trust in God. He would not allow himself, instruction for us, he would not allow himself to say, Satan is in control. No. No. I think that's part of what we need. We need to know that in the overarching purposes of God, God is in control. Though the the Satan might be poking at us. Throughout the entire book, you have this almost an irony that Job sometimes feels like asking, where is God? And yet, throughout it, God is present. So if you ever feel that, if you ever feel like asking that, the overarching fact is God is present through it all, absolutely through it all. Another kind of paradox or irony is out of all of this uh, sort of chaos leading to confusion, leading to some doubts, we have these rays of light that come out of the whole thing. That is evidence of God. That God, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of upset, can bring out of these things, as per Romans 8, good and truth and beauty. So we might say that in the realm of the earthly things, all of these aspects of suffering, yes, they are there. They are there. But if God is present through all of these earthly aspects, how much more Is he present? Paul often uses this kind of argument, the how much more argument. If such basic things be true, how much more are the heavenly things true? Oh, they're all the more true. Even Jesus himself, speaking to Nicodemus, said, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He that comes from heaven, the person who is speaking to you, is above all. This is the overarching fact. Let us not focus too much as believers on the earthly. Think for a moment, as was done recently on on these counselors, and as we look at these this, this short breakdown due to lack of time. Um, I think there is instruction uh, for us when we are in the midst of suffering, but also as per 2 Corinthians about being able to comfort people when you have experienced something similar and perhaps are able in some way to comfort. Let us be careful. Let us be very careful. Eliphaz, he has had this experience that's described in chapter 4. We have to be careful about saying, I can transfer my personal experience, my personal 
you knew, sort of unique personal spiritual experience, that's just what you need. I knew it. I knew it. My personal uh, special religious experience, I'm going to try to transfer that onto everybody. Every time somebody tells me they have a problem, I've got just the experience for you because I've had it. Let's be very careful about that. Let's be very careful about thinking that some experience that we have had that may be irrelevant is easily transferred onto a person who is suffering for some reason. And then we have Bildad, who we might call Mr. Perfect Platitude. There's nothing actually technically wrong with what he says in, in his theology, but, you know, there's an aspect of compassion and uh, throwing out, you know, I've got the verse for you, I've got the verse for you, and I've got the verse for you. Bye. You know, that, that kind of uh, uh, maybe you know, throwing out these, these um, things that are technically correct as, as aphorisms and as easy platitudes, let us be very careful about that. Do we really have a heart of love and concern? Do those verses actually mean what they need to mean to me before I start applying them to you? That's a good question. Number three, Zophar, Mr. Intellectual Insight. He's got, he's got the insight. He's got the analysis. I'm bad that way. I've got this figured out for you. You know what? I should keep quiet. I think that um, that is often not what people need, is additional um, analytical work on their situation. Elihu is off by himself at the end and um, is actually not criticized by God. The other three are. We should be very careful, you know, because as I said before, the three things that these three first individuals uh, tended toward in their discussions was innuendo. People listen. People can detect that. Do you think that if you are making innuendo that people don't pick up on it? Of course they do. Of course people pick up on innuendo. We have to be very careful about what we say. Often the one that is suffering is the, is the very one who is very, very sensitive to what is being said. We have to be extra careful to avoid innuendo. And finally on that on that slide, um, I recall some counseling that I got when, when we were talking about getting married, and it wasn't uh, necessarily saying that my wife would ever sort of necessarily do this to me, but once you get married and you have children and you have a you know, family, an extended family and all of that, um, it was pointed out to me that sometimes the ones that hurt you the most are the ones that are the closest to you. It kind of makes sense. People who can be very dear to you sometimes say the wrong thing. And you, you sort of think to yourself, you know, of all my dear ones, of all the people, you had to say that? That really hurts. We need to be careful. Well, let's get on to maybe the, the uh, I was going to say the theology of, of Job. Some time ago, a few weeks ago, I had, again, I say, had pointed out to you that the question of body and soul and spirit, these are all gods, and it's a very, very important and good question. 
To whom will you entrust yourself in your entirety, body, soul, and spirit? In whom and to whom will you entrust yourself? Good question. Are you in control? The book of Job has got a lot of sort of earthly considerations of suffering. But what about some considerations that are actually at a higher level than earthly suffering? Things that pertain to the soul and the spirit. Do you have, for example, number, do you know when you're going to die? Do you control that? Is that anything that you actually um, have a mandate over to control? That's a higher level consideration. You're going to call me a hypocrite? Well, in that context, that one who has gained, what has he gained, Job says, when God decides to take away his soul, probably puts you in mind of that man who built bigger barns. Thou fool, this night thy soul is demanded of thee. You haven't had a life of suffering like the Lazarus at the gate of the rich man who's having a banquet. You've had, you've had excess capital to build barns and it's all, you're not taking any of it with you. This night, your soul is demanded of you. Do you know when that's going to happen? That's a higher level consideration. The answer is nobody knows. Is it inevitable? It's absolutely inevitable. Do you have control over it? Do you have no control over it whatsoever? Hebrews. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Job asks this question. Do you know what to say to God when your soul does pass, when you are faced with God? We might pose that question. The day has come. It's up. It's over going to face God. What shall I do when God riseth up and when he visiteth? What shall I answer him? There will be that face to face. What shall you answer him? What will you say when it comes to be your time? That's a higher level consideration that's above the consideration of the suffering that may have preceded your passing. That's a very good question. Do you need an answer? You certainly do. Is it inevitable? It's absolutely inevitable. Do you have control over when it happens? You don't. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. That's outside of Christ. Very serious situation. Job writes this, if he, God, will contend with him, God, he cannot answer him one in a thousand. Isn't that true? We cannot answer God one in a thousand if we decide that we're going to argue with him. How pointless. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered. No one. Which removeth the mountains and they know not. Which overturneth them in his anger. Which shaketh the earth out of her place and the pillars thereof tremble which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth out upon the waves of the sea. 
which maketh Arcturus Orion in the Pleiades in the chambers of the south, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, and I perceive him not. Behold, he taketh away. Who can hinder him? Who will say unto him, what doest thou? Do you dare say to God, what are you doing? We dare not say such things. There's no human answer. There is no human answer. Now let's look at three aspects of who is in control over, over the higher level things. And in the context, as I have said, of, of Job's doubt, we actually get rays of light and things that point toward the future. Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should a man be just with God? He realized that as a need. That is a higher level need. That is something that is in God's control. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of the one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. We need justification. Mediation. We need a mediator. Job 9. For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. We need an arbiter. We need an advocate. Going on with the idea of a mediator. The King James has the word daysman. The original, if you look at other translations, it's uh, sometimes arbiter. Do you know that you need one? Do you even know? Here are three aspects of the kind of arbiter that we need. First of all, in the general case, um, I was con I'm condensing here about a page worth of Charles Spurgeon. In the general case, the arbiter, the suitable advocate, needs to be admissible or acceptable to both parties. Secondly, this arbiter or advocate needs to be of sufficient stature in his understanding and power, and he needs to be of sufficient moral fitness. And thirdly, he needs to be preferably sensible to the needs and natures of both parties. Most interesting. Is there anyone who compares with the Lord Jesus Christ? John chapter 5, as to the question of judgment, you think about the marvel of this that if we think of God as the judge, the holy judge, a holiness that would be 
impossible for the human mind to imagine. And we reimagine ourselves in that courtroom as on trial. Who is going to represent us? We need one who is more than qualified, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll read to you John chapter 5. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man, the unique Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, as to his ability, of course, the Lord Jesus in his ability is perfect in moral stature and even in love. It says in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews 4, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In John um, 14, it says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Job's concept of the need was of an advocate or arbiter that could do this. One hand on the hand of God, the other hand on me. On me. Who else? There is only one. There is only one person who does that, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect in himself, who has been given full authority by the judge, and who not only has these qualities, but who also understands our need. He wants this earth. He actually knows what it's like to inhabit a human body. There is no one like that day's man, no one that satisfies these things like the Lord Jesus Christ. On Thursday night, the scriptures, we were talking about John 14, 6 in the, uh, the Cheb building over there at Dal with the Chinese Bible study. And um, let's, let's go backwards from John 14, 6. I think you know John 14, 6. You know where I'm going. Because the day's men is very special. This, this arbiter, this advocate that we have is all-powerful and all-sensible. He satisfies every possible aspect of our need. And so, he could say what he said in John 14, 6. We read John 14, 6, and I asked the people in the room, I said, does it say, I know of a way? If I'm looking for an address, and uh, I say, yeah, I, I know of a way. Is that, is that what this is? No, 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 they said, this is not what it says. Uh, or if I said uh, to, to, to Mungnan's address, I know a way to get there. And then, then uh, Haidan said, so what's the difference between the two? So probably the first one is more in the sense of 
um, I don't necessarily have first-hand information on how to get to Mong Nan's house. But the second one is, yes, I, I, have, I have some first-hand information on how to get to that place. Does it say, I know the way? That, that's probably, I've, I, I know the best way. No, it, it doesn't say that. I am the way. There was no one like the Lord Jesus Christ and no one who made the claims that the Lord Jesus Christ made. And when I said that and wrote that on the board, the theoretical physicist across the table from me, Miss Haidan, her eyes widened. kind of a smile of surprise came over her face. That was a real blessing to see that. Does anyone make such claims as the claims of our arbiter, our advocate, the one who is the daysman for us, who puts one hand and bridges that gap with his nail-pierced hand between God and us? Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. It is the Lord Jesus who bridges that gap. We know that um, if we are believers, we know what it means to be redeemed. This is one of the strongest rays of light that is, that is present in the book of Job. One, one uh, uh, one writer said, it is as though this truth was born into him. So strong is this ray of light. For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. That has a lot in it. Four facts known to Job. There is a Redeemer. He's alive. He's mine and he's going to return. I hope that you can say with confidence in your own heart that you know that your Redeemer lives, that he is yours personally, and that you look forward to his return. Peter wrote this, for as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, and without th- uh, spot. And so we see a man who went through terrible physical suffering and terrible mental anguish. One of the things that came out of it was great clarity about salvation. That happens sometimes. Sometimes in the midst of suffering, physical suffering, it'll come, it'll go, it'll pass. We don't live on this earth forever. God reveals brings into our hearts and minds those truths which are so precious and we see it with such clarity that it has a great deal to do with how it brings us through and how we get through. I trust that the Lord has, uh, will bless these few thoughts to your, to your hearts and minds this morning. We know that at the end of his life, everything was in the earthly sense reversed and Job's dishonor was taken away 
and he, he got another family and he became uh, doubly blessed. And in the resurrection, there will be two families. The family that he lost when he was in his trial and the second family that he was given by God at the end of his trials. And so he received, in every sense, a double blessing. But the greatest blessing that he knew in his heart was redemption. And it was his certainty of redemption, I think, that brought him through this terrible trial. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people here have suffering in their lives or know certainly of those who are suffering. We pray that the rays of light of the Savior would be with us, be with each one of us to guide our own lives but also to, to, so that we can be used to help others. We pray that our words would be cautious words and that we would focus on our Redeemer, the one who has bridged that chasm between ourselves and God in heaven. We thank you for our salvation. If someone here knows not the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that your spirit would be at work to bring that person to the knowledge of yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your attention.